One of the right. biggest pulls of home ownership is that, you know, you are safe. You know, you, you want to turn on true. the heat, you turn on the heat. Welcome to the Kennedy School Review Podcast. I'm Phoenix McLaughlin. And I'm Prachi Neck. And today we have two very special guests. Uh, and <laughs> it's us. It's us. It's us. We're our own guests. Wow. <laughs> so some context for today's episode. Last spring, this past spring, Prachi and I were both in this class called the Innovation Field Lab. It's this thing taught at the Harvard Kennedy School uh, where we have a project to work with city governments around Massachusetts on dealing with housing issues, especially distressed properties, blight as some call it. Code enforcement. Yeah. And what spurred this thought for a topic of discussion on the podcast was this article that I was reading that was part of this series of really fantastic reporting by Callie Ferguson and Josh Keefe of the Bangor Daily News, which is a <laughs> regional paper in my home state of Maine, which I read uh, regularly. And Maine's in the house. That's right. And they've been doing some uh, really excellent uh, digging into the housing market of Lewiston, Maine, um, which is... Uh, the state's second largest city. And it also happens to be the place I was living this summer. Uh, it's also not too far from where I grew up. And it was, the whole series has been a really remarkable portrayal, I think, of how just the fundamental way that a housing market is supposed to work has basically broken down in Lewiston. Just tenants paying rent to landlords who maintain livable apartments for the tenants has just not been working. There is not enough money to go around. Uh, the housing market is in terrible, uh, the, the housing uh, units themselves are in terrible condition. You know, things like no hot water, uh, in, inconsistent heat in the main winters, uh, big leaks, bed bugs, mold, that kind of thing. And in this neighborhood that's uh, basically the, the, has the highest concentration of poverty in the state of Maine. So Phoenix was telling me all this, yeah. and um, we it had incredible parallels to the work that I was doing in Albany, um, and a lot of the struggles that um, folks that I was interviewing in Albany in the rental housing market were experiencing as well. So we wanted to have a conversation about it and talk about how these two relatively small cities on the East Coast could be interesting points of pause for us in having a discussion on what affordable housing should look like and could look like. So tell us more about this article, Phoenix. Yeah. So this, this most recent one in particular was about one particular landlord who it's a, it's a couple as in like a either boyfriend, girlfriend or husband and wife, I forget which. And they at their peak owned about a thousand units and yeah, in a city of, I think it's about 36,000 people. So it's a huge amount of, a huge proportion. Of, what? Yeah, it's a huge proportion. 36,000 people. So that's yeah. like what? They own 10% of, of the housing, yeah, rental housing market? It, it, was a, it was a huge amount. Um, and now, so now they're down to about two to 300. And they also, at their peak a couple of years ago, were collecting about a quarter of all of the city of Lewiston's general assistance housing vouchers, 
uh, housing funds, as in the tenants receive this funding from the city of Lewiston to, to give to landlords. Uh, and that has dropped. In fact, they are no longer uh, taking that money, uh, nor are many other landlords, because uh, recently the city passed a law that would uh, require the city to inspect housing units, uh, mm-hmm. rental units that would then be receiving these funds. So as soon as that was on the books, these landlords uh, just stopped because they knew that they that they wouldn't pass. Which would be wildly illegal <laughs> in New York, given especially the recent um, tenants' rights protections that were just um, passed in the summer of 2019. So yeah, in New York, it's it's illegal to discriminate on a housing applicant on the basis of income, legally lawfully acquired income, which in this case would be a Section 8 voucher or any other kind of housing assistance paid out by state, local, federal entities. Mm-hmm. So that's really interesting to hear that they would rather just not engage with those populations. Yeah then just make their units livable. Like, my goodness. Yeah, and it's hard to say, I mean, because, you know, it's not like we get to look at the books of, of every landlord in the in the city, but there definitely seems to be varying degrees of ability to to reasonably maintain these units. Uh, there, early in the series, there is a, uh, a piece talking about one particular owner who this was their retirement plan in, in the mid-2000s. They just bought up one or two apartment buildings. Um, and when the housing market crashed, uh, when they found out that there were going to be huge lead abatement costs, I mean, they just, they, they couldn't afford to fix it. The rent was enough to, uh, make up for that additional cost and they couldn't sell it because it was now worth half the value that they bought it for. And the tenants couldn't stay because it was unlivable. So they stopped making the rent and there was no source of income to fix up the building. On the other hand, there are these larger landlords, and it's it's hard to imagine that there isn't money to at least fix up the buildings one by one, even though, sure, I'm sure it's expensive to, in one fell swoop, just make 300 rental units beautiful places to live. But, you know, as we were talking about before we, we started recording, I mean, there are significant funds for helping with light abatement, for example. Right. But, you know, I I really can. I didn't mean my comment earlier to come across as overly pejorative towards landlords. I can totally empathize with this idea of of having bad economics of repair. I mean, certainly in Albany, there's an aging housing stock. Um, Oftentimes, the cost of repairs that should be going into a property to make it livable were not worth the eventual resale cost of Mm. that property. So, that, I mean, that makes sense. The economics are not in favor of landlords, um, whether these are people who buy up many, many properties and seek to sort of suck them dry and run them into the ground, seek every last ounce of profit out of them, or whether this is just somebody who owns a two-family unit and lives above, wants to get a little extra income by renting out the place downstairs. And yeah, the cost of repairs are just are just too high. So I have a lot of empathy for this kind of larger economic situation that people in these cities that, you know, quite frankly, not a ton of people want to live in find yeah. find themselves in. But still, I mean, the this is where I feel like really the government has a role to come in 
find these funds somehow. I don't know where exactly the leakage is happening here, but come in, make the funds available and do the right thing when the economy may not have the best interests and often does not have the best interests of the most vulnerable people mm -hmm. there. So I'm thinking, you know, of Matthew Desmond's work in um, a recent City Lab project, I would say. Matthew Desmond is, of course, the author of the book Evicted that has really changed the way people think about eviction uh, in America. And he has this really interesting concept of an exploitation index. So how this is measured is how much money is being recovered from a particular property set against the total resale cost of that property over the course of a year. So let's say a house costs or a property will say costs $100,000. If the rent being um, earned from that house um, is, let's say, $2,000 uh, a month, um, then over the course of a year, that would be $24,000, which would be roughly a 25% exploitation index because it would be 25% of the total total price of the property. So that's really high. And yeah. that's where this like idea of are poor people paying more for housing than people in you know richer, more stable neighborhoods? Is that true? Well, yes, it is. I mean, nobody would buy a house. I mean, come on, people take out... 20, 30 year mortgages when they buy their homes. You know, they're not looking to pay out their houses in a matter of four to five years. I mean, that's just like ludicrous. Right. Well, and just and just a little context on on the number that you were using as an example, they they found that about 25% was commonly the the index for um, high poverty neighborhoods. And it seems like it's it's hard to give a, a good calculation, but it seems like that's probably the case in this part of Lewiston. That it's even even when the rents are so dirt cheap, it seems that way on the on the face of it. Even if they are for apartments with literal holes in them, the buildings themselves. I, I mean, some of the buildings talked about in these articles, uh, they're triple decker buildings for eighty ninety thousand dollars. Which, for reference, I mean, where we're sitting right now in a triple decker in Somerville, I mean, easily uh, near a million, over a million, depending on the condition of the building. It's a total. I mean, obviously, Boston metro area is a totally <laughs> different ballgame, but yeah, it's it's a it's a very different situation. To say <laughs> as the, the creek says, you all will hear at some yes. point <laughs> in the course of this conversation. Yeah. Suggest, I mean, it certainly doesn't sound like a place that's should be costing a million dollars right. to be in. But you know, I think it's a really it's a really interesting and difficult concept because I think a lot of people when they hear these numbers and think about what this looks like on the ground, the sort of knee-jerk reaction is, well, why why don't people just find another place to live? Yeah. That's more worth it. Like why why are people agreeing to live in these places that are so run down, that are so difficult to raise children in a healthy fashion in? And I think I think what a lot of people don't realize, and this is something that emerged out of my interviews that I conducted um, in Albany with tenants and landlords, is that oftentimes poor tenants really have nowhere else to go. Yeah. I mean, it's not nobody chooses to live <laughs> in an exploited context. You know, they just don't have other good options out there. There are either super prohibitive credit checks, uh, really extra stringent background requirements. I mean, stuff that shuts people out from living in places where their money would go farther. 
And oftentimes that comes down to a question of identity. And it comes mm. down to a question of who are landlords choosing to rent to and mm. choosing to live in certain areas. And this is where, even though New York State made so many great strides forward in protecting tenants' rights over the course of this summer with passing all that legislation, its experience on the ground looks really different than you would suggest. Mm. Like, so we say, you know, discrimination on the basis of income is illegal. But where do people turn to when that happens? And there are a lot of excellent organizations on the ground. I'm thinking of United Tenants of Albany, for example, who, you know, work super tirelessly to bring cases against slumlords and other exploitative landlords. But the success rates of these cases are not in favor of the tenants. So the right against retaliation, you know, tenants have a right to not be retaliated against by their landlords. Retaliation is extremely hard to prove. Discrimination is extremely hard to prove. I mean, HUD, the, you know, Housing of Urban Development is making it harder and harder with proposed legislation under Ben Carson, making it harder and harder to prove discrimination. Yeah. Yeah. And and I mean, that's, the the whole process of remediation for tenants is is almost non it's just impossible i mean what you are supposed to go through a legal system which itself costs money your whole problem in the first place <laughs> is that you don't yeah. have enough money to get a nicer place to live because it's of your dark. work situation because of mm-hmm. other other things going on in your life but it, and frankly that's also true of the city trying to fix things i mean so say you have a landlord who is truly d- negligent with their properties they're not taking care of even the most basic things what the city can do is they can inspect they can inspect again they can inspect again kind of start building a case (laughs) then after many months sometimes years they can sue the landlord Um, they can then go through a lengthy court process and then at the end they're awarded what damages that the landlord couldn't afford afford to pay in the first place because they couldn't maybe afford to fix up the building. In the best case, the city can maybe seize and demolish the building if it was literally just the fact that it was standing there was a risk to people in the city, which sometimes right. is the which case. Which sometimes is the yeah. case. And this was true. This isn't a problem just in Lewiston where you were working. I mean, it was true in the cities in Massachusetts that we were working with for this class as well last spring. I mean, just there's no... There's no process that anybody really has to to fix a problem when it gets quite so extreme. Right. And the closer you get to it, the tougher it is to exactly pinpoint where the system is failing people. You have we had great people working in Albany, great mm. people working in the code enforcement department, great people working on the legal end you know, really working to hold these bad actors accountable. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, the enforcement capacity wasn't there. Mm -hmm. So the city's lawyers would win, contextually, large amounts of money that really could have held some of these exploitative landlords accountable for the way they were treating their tenants. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, the city was not guaranteed any legal mechanism for collecting on those judgments. You know, that has a trickle-down effect that, that reaches all the way down to the code enforcement officials who, mm-hmm. you know, are out there going into people's homes, trying to make sure, I think in the best iteration, we can have a lot, you know, we can have a whole other conversation about, you know, situations in which code enforcement is being wielded in 
very sort of discriminatory and dangerous yeah. ways. Yeah. But I will say that, uh, you know, in what I viewed in its best iteration, code enforcement in Albany really tried to make sure that people had healthy, safe, livable conditions. Right. And at the end of the day, those code enforcement officers were on, you know, weren't, they didn't know whether their work was going to result in justice mm. for the people that they were trying to protect. And that's demoralizing. Mm. That demoralizes and destabilizes the entire structure <laughs> of the project. So this is tough. This is tough. And we have this national conversation happening right now about what's the best way to create more affordable housing opportunities, support the middle class, support low-income folks. And you looked at the you look at the close lived experience of it, and and it really makes you wonder, like how far is this tax credit gonna go? Sometimes. Yeah, I mean, but even just to pick out a little thread there, I mean, code enforcement often is a key, well, enforcement mechanism, obviously, that the city has, and they're paid for by tax revenue, <laughs> and the tax revenue comes from property taxes. Which is right. like just a horrible, horrible <laughs> cycle. I, I mean, right. again, oh, the, like, I mean, yeah, yeah. Phoenix. I didn't even, th I didn't yeah. even think about that. Yeah, well, and like in Lewiston, I think this was, uh, I don't remember, last year, the year before, they, um, the council had to vote on whether or not to expand their code enforcement uh, department, and they had to turn it down because they didn't have the budget for it. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> uh, it's painful. It's it's kind of painful to to see in action because there's, it's hard to know. Where within the within the system closed and defined as it is, where that where that change can come from, and I'm I'm curious. Just I don't want to leave this out. I mean, you were you were working most directly on this for the city. I mean, what what were you working on, and how did that teach you about what might work and what might not? Yeah, those are big questions. You know, I think I came away with a lot a lot more questions than answers, and I think that's useful in a problem as complex as this one. But in particular, I was tasked with getting a better grasp on what the lived experience of the rental housing market was, um, not only for, for tenants, but also for landlords as well, to sort of understand um, as small business owners what demands and pressures were placed on them to try to turn a profit. And that was a really interesting juxtaposition. You know, I mm. talked to folks who were super vulnerable, living in public housing, living with vouchers, and also people who were sort of infamously known to be reaping as much profit as possible yeah. out of an environment of um, increasingly shrinking resources. So I got to see both ends of the spectrum there mm -hmm. and really got to learn and understand uh, what was happening. And I think I, I've, I've walked away from that experience with more belief, and if this is possible, <laughs> more belief in the capacity of local policy to do whatever it can to protect people mm. who, who are outside of economic rationale to protect. So these properties, yeah, we can't fight the fact that they're aging. We can't fight the fact that sometimes the cost of repair outweighs the cost, uh, excuse me, the, the value of resale. But at the end of the day, if we believe that uh, people are deserving of a place to live and raise their children in that is healthy and safe, then we need to start having those conversations. And I think the, what you brought up about the property values, I think is a really interesting idea. And it comes back to something that we 
is both talked about a lot and glossed over a lot at the same time. And that's the idea of, of the American dream. It's this idea of like, once you've made it into this single family home, you're safe. And if anything, this is a former teacher and me coming out, like you might be safe, but there's so many other people who aren't. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something essentially redistributive that has to happen here because it's not like the single mother of three who is extremely rent burdened is working any less hard than somebody else who just had more access to wealth accumulation. You know, and like that is just something where as we become increasingly segregated in our neighborhoods and aren't in contact with people who are different than us, that we forget. And so I do think it's the responsibility of public officials to have these challenging conversations and not live in fear of re-election hmm. and, and, and not skirt away from the issue of, you know what, you've enjoyed a low tax burden for many years and now it's time to pay your share because ultimately everybody benefits when the city's more livable. Everybody yeah. benefits. Yeah, I mean, it's also, you really can't overstate how sweeping the effects of this kind of issue is. So, I mean, it, it really is something that benefits everybody by helping the the few who are really struggling. I, I mean, like a very concrete example of this, I think, is the lead paint problem. No, there it um, is, yep. Like in, in Lewiston, which is is still hard for me to wrap my mind around, they, well, first of all, they've been participating in this HUD uh, grant program that's kind of this ongoing cycle, part of which was early on to get money to create kind of a, a comprehensive strategy for addressing the housing issues in this in this poor neighborhood. As part of that, they set the goal of making this neighborhood lead-free by 2045. 2045? Yeah. You are kidding me. So that's another 25 years of kids growing up around lead. Which no. like that 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 has such a powerfully bad effect on the not just that neighborhood, but the city, no. the county, the state, the school systems, the the whole thing. I, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that like really that really cuts across lines, and it's it it does not become possible to just kind of box people in and be like, well, they should be doing better, you know, they should be working harder. Landlords, you know, should be doing no. this or that. Like it's. It's clearly something that needs needs everyone, I think, to be trying to trying to solve. That's that is insane to me. That you know, and it's this and this is essential idea that like nobody would say that's okay for their own kids. Yeah, right. Nobody would agree to twenty forty five for taking lead out of houses yeah. for their own kids. Yeah, but so that's, how do we how yeah. do we get people to advocate for other people's children as they would their own? Yeah. I mean, that's essentially what this comes down to. Right, and that's the and I think that's the thing. Like this goal. These are not people who are like, well, I guess we'll have to kind of put... These are the people who like want to solve this the most. These are the people who oh are God. working... I mean, I want to look at their cost-benefit analysis. How did they not? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't wow. Know. Yeah. I wonder what the capacity is. Maybe, you know, Phoenix, you might, might not have the answer to this. But I wonder... I mean, the federal government really should be stepping in in some kind of way to like help these struggling locales. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's... I certainly don't know the answer. I, I mean, we we know that this has become a, a pretty a relatively large issue on the national stage mm -hmm. um, with the presidential primary on the Democratic side. Mm -hmm. um, it's obviously not the number one issue, but I think it is on the minds of a lot of people. And, and all the candidates have released some some type of plan to deal with it. 
Right. And to varying degrees, uh, getting back to something you were kind of hinting at, I think the ones that are more likely to be successful are probably the ones that acknowledge that not 100% of people do or will live in the single family home. Um, mm-hmm. It's about 36% of households are, are rented. They're not, they don't own their own house. Um, mm-hmm. And if the federal government continues as it has been for the past, I don't know what, since the 40s, 50s, maybe earlier, uh, just dedicated to getting people into single family houses and not acknowledging the fact that there's always going to be huge rental markets. Um, there's always going to be these kinds of trouble dynamics between landlords and tenants and maintenance and so on. You know, it's not going to get solved. Right. And it, and it goes back to that really salient point that you brought up about expanding the tax base. I mean, once you have people sitting on property that they own, you tax them for it. And clearly you don't tax them enough. (laughs) Right. Right, Or the right people enough for it, which is complicated. It's complicated. But I I can't help but think, you know, if we made protections for people who are renting good, Mm -hmm. then maybe we wouldn't need to have such a push towards homeownership. One of the biggest pulls of homeownership is that, you know, you are safe. Nobody can, you know, you you want to turn on the heat, you turn on the heat. (laughs) If you want, you know, if you need to fix something, like you can fix it. Like versus when you're renting, you are sort of living under somebody's thumb in some Mm. capacity. And even though if New York is any indication, you might have the rights on your side, but the legal infrastructure is not there. Mm. It's not there. Yeah. Well, Hopefully we will see some exciting solutions coming from the federal government, city governments, everywhere in the uh, coming few months and years. Yeah, friends, thanks for listening to us just sort of freestyle about this. It's stuff that <laughs> it's stuff that's close to our hearts and we're playing with a new format here still trying to give you some of that organic juxtaposition <laughs> <laughs> life of a policy student. But thanks for listening and let us know what you think about this, what your thoughts are. We're always interested to hear. All right. And thank you to David Hicks for our theme music. And yeah, thank you for listening. Thanks. This is Phoenix and Pratchy signing off.